Hey, what is going on, everybody? Welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast for April 16th, 2008. My name is Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I'm joined, as usual, by my co-podcasters. First up on the line from snowy Chicago, we've got 538's Chris Herring. Hey, Chris. Hey, man. How are you? Good. Uh, it's a little wet here, uh, un- unlike the snow that you're getting, uh, which seems drier. Uh, I'm a little bit uh, envious of you with that, uh, which I never thought I would say, given our uh, snow interrupting our podcasting schedule. Also here in studio, he braved the monsoon that we faced in New York. It's fellow 538 sports writer Kyle Wagner. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Neil. How you doing? Uh, wheezy, you know, phlegmy, you know, the usual. Classic, classic Kyle form, uh, playoff form, in fact. Uh, so speaking of which, today's show is our very first true playoff pod. Uh, and so it's going to be a little bit shorter than usual because we're also going to be bringing you two of these episodes a week throughout the postseason. Uh, and so let us know what you think about that change in the format. Uh, in this episode, We're going to talk about the Cavs' miserable showing in Game 1 of their series against the Indiana Pacers, plus two other things that surprised us over the weekend. But first, guys, I want to hear your one-sentence quick takes on the series that we won't be discussing in depth today. First up, Houston versus Minnesota. Go. Uh, so that offense that we talked about last week uh, showed up and just showed us that they're not a real 8 seed. If they'd uh, had Butler the entire time, they would have been you know anywhere from 3 to 5. My quick take on that is just that the – Timberwolves are, are stupid in the sense that they didn't involve Towns nearly enough. I think he took nine shots, and half of those were at the end of the game or you know put back. That's part one of my sentence. Part two is that this won't matter anymore once the Rockets start making their threes. And they were just awful last night. I think their worst three-point shooting performance of the season, and they're not going to do that again. This will be a sweep. I still think it will still be a sweep. Okay, Oklahoma City versus Utah, Chris. I look at this series and, you know, the one thing I thought the Jazz had this, I think they're the better team in the series, but if Oklahoma City gets hot, then they're in trouble. And Paul George just shot the lights out. Um, you know, all the talk about him this season and Nola Depot being better. Paul George showed he's still a star, maybe a superstar. And I think that's why they won that game. I think it's just because Utah couldn't score as much. Uh, like we've talked a lot about the, the inconsistent uh, Oklahoma City uh, offense, but the Jazz just aren't set up to take advantage of the holes in that Oklahoma City defense without Robertson there. All right, Kyle. Uh, Boston versus Milwaukee. Great finish to regulation in that one. Yeah, it was a great finish, but also uh, that was a lot of like Jalen Brown and Tatum just working off the ball a lot, and especially Rozier. Rozier uh, didn't have a great uh, night from the field or whatever. He, he had some uh, good buckets late, but there's a lot of uh, Brown and Rozier working off the ball and uh, creating opportunities like that. Horford is just so good. I mean, the, the fact he's just so comfortable backing down. Giannis, who they were trying to play at the five, but you start to see it's not quite as easy as just throwing him at the five and, you know, that's solving everything. But also Milwaukee just got nothing out of certain guys. They got nothing out of Bledsoe, who had a horrible play on Rozier's three to, to, take the, uh, to take the lead there. He just gave up on the play. And Parker is still really looking rough. I mean, he had some horrible shots. Still not really there on defense, but Middleton looked like a star. All right, Toronto versus Washington. The Raptors finally snapped their game one curse. I mean, this is what they should be doing, honestly. I, I don't. We talk, we joke all the time about, you know, giving them credit where it's due, but at a certain point, you're the one seed. You, you shouldn't need that sort of validation. They played well. I was impressed with Lowry and DeRozan um, kind of getting into a rhythm by passing the ball first. They weren't very good shooting it in the first half, but they kind of were still getting their teammates involved, which was different than the past. 
Lowry especially for me. So Lowry was getting a lot of heat on like Twitter and whatever because he had two points for a while and it uh, wasn't an obviously good game, but uh, his numbers um, and just like his play, like overall, like like Chris said, passing the ball and just getting other people involved. Uh, it wasn't just like good to look at. Like it, it was good to look at because it was a bigger backcourt he was playing against, but also the numbers were behind it. It was efficient too. And finally, the Warriors uh, over the Spurs, the Warriors kind of snapping out of their uh, malaise uh, late in the season, it seems. For me, it's just like this Spurs team is just depleted to the point that for stretches, Tony Parker in 2018 was looking like their best player on the floor, which just can't happen if you're going to be competitive in a series with this team, even without Curry. Yeah, they're they're just too slow to to stay with a team like that, and there's not enough offense to go around. I mean, even if Kawhi was there, I'm not sure there'd be quite enough offense, but definitely not without him. And uh, it's just it, it sucks to see because it's a team that is playing hard. You know, maybe they can steal a game by how hard they're playing, but you know, it's not going to go beyond that. All right, let's move on to the three things that stood out to us the most as the playoffs got underway this weekend. First, let's talk about the Cleveland Cavaliers and the level of panic they should have after the Pacers beat them 98-80. to This snapped LeBron James' streak of 21 consecutive first-round wins. And according to the Elias Sports Bureau, this is the first time that a LeBron James team has trailed in a first-round series at any point in his entire career. Guys, uh, well... Go through the list of things for me. What what went wrong for the Cavs and maybe what went right for the Pacers? How much credit we sh- should we give to each of those two things when we're assessing this game one route? So this is going to sound extreme, but uh, a lot of the blueprint for this, at least on the defensive side for the Pacers or offense for Cleveland, however you want to put it, uh, goes back to last year's finals uh, in that... If you can guard LeBron basically one-on-one, if you cannot help off of all his shooters and you can stick him with someone in the middle, uh, that looks a lot different than LeBron that like is bringing help from everywhere else and can you know just find everything. And it turns out, just like last year's Cavs, uh, they need someone else to create. And uh, last year's Cavs like, had Kyrie Irving, and they needed you know someone on top of that to, to create also uh, when the LeBron offense wasn't going. Uh, this year's Cavs doesn't even have Kyrie, and it was very clear when they were asking anyone else to try to do anything at all uh, that they just, like, couldn't get it done. Yeah, I mean, as far as credit, blame, whatever you want to call it, I mean, I think the Cavs are just – and they didn't lose the game yesterday because of defense, but I think they were kind of rattled really early because they play so soft defensively and give so much space. You know, I've written about how the Pacers – they will take the first open shot you give them. Uh, you notice Oladipo and other guys there, they will kind of, Collison is someone that does this too, will kind of back up, and I've seen so much of this the last you know, two days, will back up uh, almost like a game of 21 or something like that, back up to half court, and then Oladipo just kind of sprints at you and gets you back on your heels, and then he creates enough space to get a jump shot from mid-range. Most teams don't fight for those sorts of looks, but the Pacers will. And the Cavs were thrown off by it, and they gave up a lot of open shots. The Pacers take a ton of open shots from kind of less-than-ideal areas, but they make them because all their guys can shoot. And so it's just a situation where the Cavs don't play great defense. I think they got in a huge hole. They started to come back from it, but it goes back to what Kyle was saying in the sense that they only have really one guy out there who can create, and it relies on at least two or three other guys to get hot because they've got to you know, rely so much on LeBron. Um, and J.R. Smith was one of the only guys that really did that at, at any point yesterday. 
Yeah, on offense, they only scored 87.2 points per 100 possessions, which was actually the third worst offensive game of the entire season for the Cavs, and it happened in their playoff opener. So guys, how worried should Cleveland be from this point onward? We were talking on Slack a little bit about, uh, you and I, Chris, about how, you know, should the Cavs be concerned about losing home court? And you said, not really, it, it doesn't seem like it mattered. And, and the LeBron era in Cleveland has kind of borne that out in some ways, because they have a league best 21 and 10 record on the road in playoff games over the past uh, three seasons and change. So is is the concern just more about, you know, trying to work out the particulars of this roster and, and maximize things after such a bad start more than just like, hey, we lost home court and now Indiana, you know, has has more games that, that they should be favored in going forward? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't think that that's the concern. I mean, I still think people would be really shocked if, if Indiana wins the series. I'd be a little bit surprised, but not entirely. I think I, I was I put this at a seven-game series to begin with. Um, I mean, I think one of the questions is just kind of where else do you get offense from? If you're, their, their defense will probably not get that much better than what it was yesterday. I mean, holding the Pacers to less than 100 is good, um, but they still have to obviously make up for it on offense. Uh, a lot of people noticed that Corver really wasn't playing at all yesterday and kind of, you know, a, a team that's struggling to score, why wouldn't you plug Corver into a lineup somewhere? Um, which makes me wonder, is he healthy? Um, how much are they prioritizing the idea of trying to get guys on the court who can create their own look, which Corver's really not going to do that. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's concerning. LeBron's refrain to this was kind of, you know, you're going to ask me, a guy that was down 3-1 in the finals to the best team of all time, maybe, you know, if I'm worried about being behind, please. But this is a team that isn't as good um, defensively. Clearly, I mean, like I said, 98 points was good for them defensively to only give up 98. Um, I, I just I don't fully trust them. I could see them going down too. All. I'll put it that way. I'd be a little surprised if that happened, but I could absolutely see it. Um, and I think the bigger thing is, you know, how do they perform on the road? They're obviously going to have to get one back on the road at some point. Right. For me, it's like, it's not a thing where the Cavs can just chalk it up as like, oh, we're just missing shots. Like, yes, Je- uh, Jeff Green's not going to go over seven probably again. Uh, I was about to say. <laughs> I was, yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. Probably he's not going to. Uh, but like, that's the thing. Like, they can't just, uh, rely back on saying, oh, we're going to return to form because we have all these guys who have done this before. They have Jeff Green. They have Jose Calderon. They have George Hill and Rodney Hood. These are guys who like, you know, some of them have some playoffs experience, uh, but none of them have like been, you know, part of the LeBron championship teams, part of like teams that have, you know, consistently gone deep into the playoffs and who are still like, you know, in their prime all the way. And so it's not a thing. And it's on the other side. It's not a thing where they can say, oh, okay, we're just going to, you know, tighten things up and, you know, really lock down Oladipo. Well, you don't have personnel for that. So it's a thing where, yes, they're going to play better or, or they should play better. But it's not a thing where they have the personnel to just say, oh, we're going to return to form. We're going to just do what we do because that's not really who they have around. And they've kind of maxed out in in this game even the amount that they could rely on LeBron. I mean, he played all but four minutes. He had uh, he assisted on 59% of his teammates' buckets. He had a usage rate of 28%. I mean, that is like LeBron in his in his peak form of, of carrying the load, and just no one around him was able to make shots or really do much of anything, uh, and that's got to be kind of concerning, because we've seen LeBron drag one-man team, you know, his uh, he being the only player of, of any kind of quality on teams before, you know, to a certain extent through the 
playoffs. But yeah, he always, when he was most successful, he did have that Kyrie. He had that other guy uh, that could kind of take some of the burden off of him. And I don't know if he has that this year. Okay, let's move on to talk about the Pelicans uh, upset over the Portland Trailblazers. That was really the only upset in the Western Conference uh, over the among the game ones over the weekend. Uh, Chris, uh, in our playoff preview, you predicted that Drew Holiday was going to have a good series, and he started out with 21.7 rebounds and two assists, shot 50% from the field in game one. What was it about his game that made you think that he could do this well against the Blazers? Was it something about the particular matchup, and do you think that the Blazers are going to be able to adjust off of that? It was the matchup. I mean, first of all, it, it's it's been really cool to see him get as much credit as he's gotten. Um, I mean, he's probably a top five guard in the league defensively. This season, he definitely deserves to be on the all-defensive team. And that's what I like so much about him. He's one of my five favorite players in the league. Um, you know, it's weird to call someone underrated or undervalued when he makes the money he does now after this past offseason. Um, he's been an all-star before, but people don't think of him that way. He had that injury run for a couple of years where people, I think, kind of forgot how good he was in Philly um, and now isn't asked to do quite as much with a guy like Anthony Davis and with DeMarcus Cousins and kind of had to struggle to find his role there. But he's the most well-rounded guard in this series. Uh, doesn't mean he's the best guard. You know, Lillard should be first-team All-NBA this season. But Holiday plays defense. He's going to make those guys work. And I think even in the last three minutes of that game alone, made like three critical, critical defensive plays there, including a huge block off the backboard to kind of seal that, that victory for them. Um, Davis played out of his mind, but there's no way they would have won that game without the plays that Holiday made down the stretch. So for me, it's it's Holiday also, who I'll get back to in a second, but it's also Rondo. And really, those two thriving in that game, because I think Rondo had a nice game also, uh, that reflects on the Portland defense. And we've talked about the Portland defense a bunch this season, uh, because just a surprising thing for them to you know, have turned it around like that. But And it's come and gone, and it went a little bit here. Uh, but like what they do, and we've talked about this also, is they'll drop their big man all the way back to the basket, and they'll just wait for you there, and just you know trust their guards to get back in the play. And for Rondo, that's how teams used to guard Rondo when Rondo was at his best. So AD was like, oh yeah, here's here comes playoff Rondo, and like okay, but like don't defend him like playoff Rondo was defended either, where you just get all the way out of his way, give him all this space because he still sees the floor well. And for Holiday, Holiday operates well in the mid range, and so like this is a thing where. Uh, this kind of defense in the aggregates over the course of a regular season of teams that like, you know, one, aren't, you know, totally well suited for it like this team is, uh, the Pelicans, but two, like aren't prepared for it like every game. Uh, yeah, that, that can, that can work over the, the course of a season. Certainly better than the defense they had. But in a short series, in a series where like people are planning for you, uh, it's the kind of thing that can, you know, get picked up like this. And for, for this team, it just kind of plays into their hand. Yeah, and if you contrast that at the other side with the backcourt for Portland, specifically if you look at Lillard, McCollum, and Evan Turner combined, they shot 19 for 56. That's 34% uh, from the field in that game. And that was one of the big reasons why Portland's offense also just never got untracked uh, in the game. And so, you know, it's tough to win when you have a backcourt mismatch like that. And also we're bearing the lead a little bit. Anthony Davis had an amazing game, as usual, 35 points, 14 rebounds in the game. What do you guys think that Portland can do if anything, to kind of contain him going forward? Or is this just going to be something that they have to kind of live with for the rest of the series and then just hope that their their star guards just shoot better in the games going forward? They've got to they've try something different. I mean, they, they went with Nurkic for a long time there. 
And that was kind of why I predicted that Davis would. I mean, it's not uh, a huge news flash to say that, you know, Anthony Davis will have a big series, but even for him, I think this could just be a massive series if they continue to play Nurkic on him. Um, they, they tried a Minu here and there. Um, I mean, I think they probably need to double more when Davis isn't in the middle of the floor when they can actually bring a, a help defender or a second guy there. And you take your chances. Rondo's been a little bit better from three this year. He's been able to shoot. But, I mean, I'd rather take my chances with just about anybody and force a team to prove that they're going to make threes. You obviously don't want to double off of somebody like Miritich or someone like that. Um, but you've got to help somewhere. And I, I tend to think that uh, Nurkic just isn't a good matchup. That's why Rondo had so many that they're just kind of looping the ball over Nurkic's head to where only Davis could catch it. Right, so I kind of forgot the second half of my point earlier where uh, this is a team that's uniquely set up to to eat up this this Portland defense as it has been playing because, oh yeah, the guards use the space in front of them well, whether it's, you know, taking the mid-range shot or, you know, using it to find a player. Also, the last person in the league you want to be dropping all the way to the basket to and just waiting for on a pick and roll is Anthony Davis. And they met him out there a little bit, but like not all the time. And there were a few where it's just like, oh yeah, we'll, we're just going to, we're going to drop a little bit, not even as far as you usually drop, but just drop a little bit on like the left wing was like the crazy one. And it's just like, oh yeah, um, anyone else or like most other power forward centers in the league, you're going to have a little bit of time to recover, send help. Um, and I think they sent help on like the, the big, big dunk. And no, Davis is just by you already in dunking. And it's just a thing where this thing that's worked for them all season is just getting going to get picked apart. So like Chris said, they need to think about, you know, coming out higher. But I don't know how you come out that high with Nurkic on the floor. And he's been like their guy to to guard all the shots this season. So if the first game of the playoffs just gets you to throw your season long center out of the door, like, I don't know if that's going to go well for you. You know, the, the one thing I'll say, too, which I, I love Terry stuff, but there was some weird stuff happening right at the end of the game. Uh, and this gets to Kyle's point. I mean, it may be a lineup adjustment in the sense where like, if Nurkic can't guard Davis, which we kind of knew that, uh, I think, you know, maybe Portland was hoping that they could. You obviously don't want to, you know, pull a Warriors where all of a sudden you come out with a totally new starter like Iguodala, uh, which played out well perfectly, by the way. But, um, you know, it may mean going to Collins, uh, who they brought off the bench for a little bit and, and played pretty well in short minutes. But can we just talk about Terry Stotts and basically the last two plays of that game brought out Myers Leonard um, and not only brought him out off the bench where he hadn't played at all for the last basically offensive play of the game, but also put him in a position to touch the ball. Like it'd be one thing you've got him out there. He's potentially spacing the floor, uh, a play where he actually touched the ball and was going to go for a two pointer when they needed a three, but, uh, he explained it a little bit, that, you know, that, that kind of wasn't exactly the way the play was drawn up. Connaughton was out there as well, and he said that he was literally the last option. But a weird call there, um, and something that I wasn't expecting that obviously didn't work out very well. Okay, finally, let's talk about the Philadelphia 76ers. We had speculated a lot, us and others, uh, about what effect the playoff and experience of the Sixers crew would have on their postseason prospects. All they did was, in their first playoff game in years, they came out and they beat the Miami Heat by 27 without Joel Embiid. Guys, what stood out to you about that game, and, and how were they able to kind of accomplish that uh, w- without their best player in the lineup? 
So for me, it was like, yes, without Embiid in there, I was expecting them to struggle a little bit more on defense and also uh, in the front court. On the other end, you know, not space the ball, uh, space the floor quite as well. But the lineup with Saric and uh, Ilyasova where just everyone is a little oversized for their position or a lot oversized for their position and just everyone can shoot around Simmons just does a lot to take away the concerns about like, oh, but Simmons, you know, hasn't taken a three-pointer on purpose this season. Uh, that lineup was just... Uh, it was a little bit eye-opening where it's just like, oh, losing on purpose, you know, kind of does this to you. But, like, they have Ilias Over where they can just, like, plug in and give you a lineup that's, you know, full of shooting in a way that's, you know, maybe a little unexpected. I mean, the funny thing is Kyle mentions that is just that they had Ilias Over on the roster before. It's like, wow, what a difference, you know, a, a star, a superstar makes. When you have Simmons, they kind of put those guys around and uh, kind of have them be the spokes as opposed to the the whole hub by themselves. But, um, yeah, I... To me, I mean, first of all, they looked very rough to start the game. I mean, they got to 130 despite playing really, really poorly in the first few minutes, which I think Eric Spolster kind of um, thought would be the case. You know, he basically said, you know, we'll play six minutes and then we'll start playing basketball just because the emotions run high. The Sixers are so young, Covington being there for the first time, Simmons. Um, but I think what really stood out to me, I mean, 90 points out of Sarge, Oyasova, Bellinelli, and Reddick. 90 points from those four. That is insane. It's something that probably won't happen again, but you also have to remind yourself that they're doing this without probably their best player. Um, but what I wrote about earlier this morning was the idea that uh, putting those guys, like Kyle said, around Simmons um, and playing at the pace with the tempo that they play at, um, they have all these quick hitters. In a lot of cases, they have these fake handoffs that they use with Simmons. He had a beautiful, beautiful ball fake on one play where he literally had the two best defenders from Miami and Winslow and Richardson kind of, you know, run at Reddick because of how well they were shooting and then leaving him open to just turn around and go in for a basket. And so there, there's just so much pressure on the defense to stay with all these shooters, two of whom they got from, you know, the tanking Atlanta Hawks off the scrap heap, you know, that they cut. Um, but they just have so much value in this offense. Part of the reason they were willing to pay Reddick so much money was it the $23 million for just this one year because they so desperately needed shooting for guys like Simmons and guys like Fultz that really can't shoot. Yeah, Sixers shot 64% from the arc in uh, Game 1 against Miami. So obviously that is not going to probably stay the same going forward, but what else can the Heat do to kind of slow things down uh, and, and try to stop this you know, Simmons-led offensive machine that we saw in Game 1? So for one thing, they just need to be able to score a little more consistently. Uh, they, they weren't just, uh, you know, giving up, you know, all the threes, um, you know, at the big rate. They just also weren't getting it done on offense. And like even the Olenek lineup, uh, where you stick Olenek at five and like got a bunch more shooting out there. Um, that's been a very good offensive lineup for them. Uh, like that really wasn't clicking. So I feel like they need to, figure something i'm not sure what that's going to be all season they've uh, kind of been looking for it, and the game kind of got away from them before like they could really just think about you know putting you know weird bench lineups in there to to you know get a run it back at them i, I mean the, the weird thing here is that i think that kyle brings a good point you, you can't expect to win a game like that when you don't have more offense they they scored more in the first i think 10 minutes of the game than they did in the next 30 or something like that they were just really really, really awful, um, and just had nothing going for them. Dragic had a rough game. Wade wasn't really getting it going. Um, and making some baskets would slow the Sixers down a little bit because they're looking to run off every miss, especially with Simmons and how many rebounds he gets. 
basically like Westbrook um, when he's getting rebounds and kind of going for these triple doubles where they're just able to run the floor differently off of a miss. But I, I honestly think this will sound crazy, but it, I think it's something that's going to be looked at a little bit more closely uh, once he comes back. And this will sound a little bit crazy, but Embiid coming back may actually help the Heat, at least initially. I mean, it's not going to win them the series. Um, but, you know, you figure Embiid will be rusty when he comes back, probably closer to game three or so. Um, but if nothing else, he's probably going to slow the tempo down just because he demands so many more post-ups, so many more post-ups than anybody else in the NBA on a per 100 possession basis. He turns the ball over a decent amount. Um, he might actually allow you to play Whiteside a little bit more. Whiteside was non-existent in this game. It was just awful um, and didn't look right in this game in part because of the tempo in part because of all the shooting and in part because he wasn't doing anything offensively in a game moving that quickly. So you might actually be able to utilize him a little bit more and a little bit differently. Um, and it's crazy to say that, but Embiid coming back might give them a shot to at least win a game just because it'll probably throw the Sixers out of rhythm with the way they've been playing for the last month, month and a half. Damn, like one game. So like after this, you're just like, this is a five-game series, like four-game series? I mean, the thing is, I, I think the I love Spolstra. I, I mean, and part of the reason I respect them so much is that they've played guys well in the past when they basically question their ability to shoot. They do pretty well against Giannis. They do pretty well against LeBron, who actually can shoot. But, you know, you would take your chances quicker with his jump shot than you would with him going to the basket. They kind of threw what I think was a pretty good shot at them uh, as far as, you know, Simmons and backing off of him, but doing it in a smart enough way to where you're not giving him a full runway to just kind of dribble and pick up steam. They were playing off of him enough, and they were doing it with pretty good defenders. That was their scheme, and it worked for them decently in the regular season. I just wonder now that he kind of blew that up and that they kind of blew that up by playing at the pace they did, at the tempo they did. If they don't shoot better, I don't really know what move you go to defensively. Maybe they come out with something totally different. Maybe they just don't use Whiteside at all, which would be a hell of a move to do with the max guy. But I don't really know how many cards they've got in their back pocket to really pull out here. See, for me, um, and like uh, it seems like this always comes up with the Heat, where the Cavs are like, oh, yeah, it's just a make-and-miss league. Uh, we missed a bunch of shots. For me, this is the series, or this is the game at least, that like that seemed to be more true of. Uh, they missed a lot of shots. Like at, to start that second half, they just you, you looked up and like they'd scored two points for the first however many uh, minutes, and five points for like most of the most of that quarter. And like at the same time, like uh, I mentioned that lineup at the beginning because Sarich and Ilyasova both were like at what sixty percent. Like one was like four for six, the other was six for eight or something like that from three. And I feel like both of those things combined uh, made this game seem a lot less competitive than than it probably will be going forward. All right, cool. Thanks, guys. We're going to leave things there for now. That'll do it for this week's show. But we will be back to talk later in the week as even more playoff games get put in the books. Our podcast producers are, as always, Tony Chow and Katie Ferguson. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. Keep sending us your questions and comments at podcast at 538.com. We'd love to hear from you. Whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we are there as well, whether it's the Listen tab of the ESPN app or on Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. Be sure to review and rate the show. It helps others discover the program. For Chris and Kyle, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later in the week.